0: Summer comes, the river runs again. I hear the music sake of the ice, cream man, I'm making sparks, I'm making
1: brand, new friends, when summer comes. Hello there folks. Happy day. Welcome back to the strange time. We're happy to be back. We're happy that you're back. And we're hoping, at least I'm hoping, I'd say we're hoping, that you're happy. Or at least you're finding ways to be happier, or f- thinking about ways to be happier. That's that's cool, right? I'm going to keep this one short and sweet, as you can find my daily notes more and more now on the blog at theestrangetonic.com, if you haven't looked them up already, in order to keep uh, you know the monologue a little bit shorter. So without further ado... Of course, we got to give a shout-out to our friends Panastral, Panastral.com, Panastral on SoundCloud, Panastral at Bandcamp, Astral on iTunes, Panastral wherever you get your digital music. What we're using here is When Summer Comes off of one of their albums. Not the most recent album, I keep saying that, but this is When Summer Comes off of Suburban Blues. I think the choice of this song will probably speak for itself. And from there, again, Happy New Year. Happy you're back. Please be happy. Find Maybe ways to be happy. You're happy for and thank you. something. Maybe I let the
0: sun in. Maybe the summer's come.
1: that at least my inspiration for doing this episode, because I don't want to like, I want to give credit where credit was due, and it's going to come off as derivative in a lot of ways anyways, (laughs) so it comes from listening to initially the Electoral College episode that the team at the You're Wrong About podcast did, which Michelle, they are still high on the like Popular podcasts, mm. and I was looking on the Apple Podcast uh, recommended podcasts, like their favorites of the year, and you're wrong about it's like in the top five. So Sweet. they're uh, they're making a name for themselves. So there's that. I read a bunch of stuff. I listened <laughs> to some podcasts, and so and I've just thought about this while I was setting the microphone this evening. I want to make it clear, and Michelle, I think you're the same way, that we're not saying, and I have this in my personal notes, fuck the Electoral College because it doesn't benefit those of us that tend to vote left or whatever you want to call it. I'm saying it because there were a lot of problems with it to start, and there are currently a lot of problems with it, and it is uh, something that is Somewhat partisan. And as I said before, thinking about that and podcasts, when I was looking for podcasts to listen to to learn more, one of the ones that came up was Stephen Crowder talking to Ben Shapiro. Oh, God. Where they were praising the Electoral College and how awesome it is. And chiefly, my main problem with Electoral College is somewhat the same that my problem is with, let's say, just Steven Crowder and, to some extent, Ben Shapiro, is it was set up, apparently, to do one thing, which was, depending on who you talk to, was to keep stupid demagogues from being elected president. So, obviously, that hasn't worked. (laughs) Uh, If you look at, and we'll get into this more in a second, kind of how things actually shaped out, it was always a stopgap. So it was supposed to be improved, and with anything in you know, our democracy, we should be doing little policy tweaks here and there. So it was bad kind of policy from the start, hasn't been tweaked in good ways, and um, it isn't doing what it's supposed to do. Kind of like how Stephen Crowder is supposed to be a comedian, yet is <laughs> just painfully unfunny. He's just... Uh, Forgive me, listeners, he's just an asshole. And Ben Shapiro is supposed to be some sort of intellectual, but is, I don't want to call him an asshole, he's just a nakedly partisan, shameless hack.
0: Hmm.
1: So from there, Michelle, what, because this is, I took this from what you said, why do you say, fuck the Electoral College? <laughs> um,
2: because it's not democratic. <laughs> basically
1: another problem i have with it yeah uh
2: the yeah the electoral college i mean it doesn't necessarily it doesn't reflect the will of the people which that's not generally not what its intention was in the first place either but that's what a majority of the of you know americans want it to be they want their votes to count they want our systems of government to actually reflect, um, you know, majority will. And, uh, that's not what the electoral college does, or at least, at least we've seen it come up in our lifetime enough to demonstrate that it doesn't do that. (laughs) This is, uh, you know, two major elections in our lifetime have come up with, um, you know, the the winner being the person that lost the popular vote by large numbers. And uh, people don't want it to be that way anymore.
1: And believe it or not, it could have been uh, three elections because it was pretty close in 2004 mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, Kerry would have won the popular vote and lost the Electoral College. It would have been a nail biter. Then again, that's kind of what... No, it wasn't that close, I should say, in 2000. <laughs> but... Uh, but still,
2: and, I mean, I, it was it was more... I mean, it was more of a nail-biter than in 2016. That's true. Because it was a difference of half a million votes overall, uh, comparing the popular vote to uh, 2016 with 3 million.
1: Do you want to uh, go back and get some, or because you probably have more of the history than I do, I just kind of have some broad strokes as mm. to how we got this, or do you want to work our way back?
2: Um, I, I'm, I'm happy with either choice, Noel. Um, so, you know, lead, lead me there. Do you? Did, okay. Should we start with the history, or do you have an outline that's different than that?
1: Uh, I have an outline that starts with the history. It's, it's a little easier oh, for perfect. me. Perfect. Okay. Uh, plus, I was Let's kind of going to lead towards certain things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, Michelle, uh, because I am silly and did not write the year down, uh, <laughs> what year did the uh, Continental Congress meet, or the the founders meet, if you will, to, or the framers, excuse me, <laughs> to put together this wonderful thing known as the Electoral College?
2: Yes, the Constitutional Convention that actually came up with our current constitution was in 1787 began in may wrapped up about september of that year
1: and as they so wonderfully point out on the rock you're wrong about podcast it was a summer where all of these uh land-owning white men were away from their businesses farms whatever wives uh my favorite little part was they're all drinking basically cider or whiskey Mm Mm-hmm. And the reason they're there is because the Articles of Confederation just isn't working. The states can't agree on a constitution. Uh, The federal government, in that case, was designed to be weak.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Only one House of Congress exists. Uh, Here's a typo from my notes. East state has one vote. Obviously, each state. Uh, a supermajority of Congress is required to pass any legislation. And Michelle, correct me if I'm wrong, but from the beginning, right there, a cadre of states, looking at you, South Carolina, that were demanding to have the right to secede whenever something that they didn't agree with, or at least uh, nullify, like the effects on them.
2: Yeah. Yes, that is correct. I mean, you know, we think of the Articles of Confederation as the precursor to the Constitution, but it was, it it was very, very loose terms that they were all agreeing to be a country on. <laughs> and uh, with that came a lot of problems. You know, the war, the American Revolution ended in 1781. I think that was the...
1: We'll look that up for the show notes.
2: Yeah, we'll look that up just to be sure. Um, Things kind of dragged out back then, so I don't remember specifically. But anyways, you know, the country, the United States, you know, under the Articles of Confederation, had really only been around for like five or six years at this point. And within five or six years, a lot of people were thinking, this isn't going to work. Um, a lot of states didn't like to participate and send their delegates to Philadelphia because um, they didn't want to, and it was hard to travel and uh, costly. Uh, they, there was not a single currency. The, there was no federal government to speak of that could, like, could collect taxes, could not form an army. Um, it, it was just not going to pan out in the long run.
1: The only thing you didn't have there from my notes on that same point was mm-hmm. that uh, they couldn't they couldn't conduct a singular foreign policy and uh, no. having a foreign policy or diplomacy that operates in the same direction is good, and they also couldn't settle debts.
2: No, no, that was also a huge problem. Massively in debt after the war, and trying to <laughs> <laughs> trying to get the books in order was very difficult when they couldn't get any of the ta- any tax money collected. Um, and Noel, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was there was no executive branch either. No, there was no, no single figurehead to help facilitate that one diplomacy system um, or foreign policy, uh, and there there wasn't a good check on that very poorly attended uh, legislature either. So um, the Constitutional Convention was you know proposed under under the uh, the idea that the Articles of Confederation could be tweaked. And then James Madison shows up and says, nope, we're scrapping the whole thing. Let's do something else.
1: What I was thinking here is the whole, like, Articles of Confederation kind of remind me of some of the trade deals that have happened in recent years where nations will sign on to the agreement to work towards an agreement. Like, hey, let's, uh, let's talk about this later on. Cool, that sounds good. And mm. that's what the Electoral College oh, – excuse me, I'm jumping the shark here – That's what the Articles of Confederation seem like, is a, yeah, we want to work together, and we'll figure it out later. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I put down, too, that, uh, and this is verbatim from my outline, as a humanist, I like the idea of libertarianism, bro, but states' rights (laughs) was and will remain a problem, well, forever. Mm -hmm. Slavery versus anti-slavery has been a debate since before our founding. As I mentioned, South Carolina's a problem. And when states go their own way and don't want to offend their constituents, Shays' Rebellions happen.
2: Hmm, yeah.
1: And that's poor planning on my part because I kind of forgot what that is already. <laughs>
2: 1786. Just, you know, a good half a year before the Constitutional Convention.
1: Hmm, how about that?
2: Yes, uh happened in Western Massachusetts against, guess what, the uh attempt to collect taxes um
1: don't tax me bro
2: yeah pretty much that was shay's rebellion um yeah so i mean and again that's just 4 years after this this big old war against britain and people are already like confused and unsure how how this new confederation is supposed to work um you know, it's like you you have to change the words, you have to change the structure in order for these these separate states. And if we think about states as kind of a precursor to nation states, mm-hmm. you know, these were all separate geographic spaces controlled by Great Britain for 150 years at this point. And they were all treated separately. So then to all of a sudden ask all the colonies to cooperate with each other when they had kind of been used to identifying as... Virginians and, you know, New Yorkers and stuff. Like, it was a different concept, trying to forge, like, a new nation altogether. And everybody, of course, from different geographic regions had very different opinions about how it should go together.
1: Also, there's the whole problem of, uh, hey, uh, who do we all collectively dislike? Who do we collectively (laughs) blame for our problems? Ugh, we have to blame ourselves, aren't we? Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, people don't like blaming themselves. It's usually easier to blame other people.
1: How about that? Trump actually made some inroads with mainly Latino immigrants in this election. Part of that was because he dialed back the uh, the build-the-wall crap. (laughs) Yes, that is true. But part of it is is what I was thinking tonight is uh, talking out of both our sides – both sides of our mouths, excuse me, about immigration has been America since before America existed. The whole, uh, you know, we're a nation of immigrants, but also keep those immigrants out of here. Like, we're, I'm mm-hmm. an immigrant, but I'm already here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was uh, <clears throat> that was a fun scapegoat forever for America. But, but, yeah, and Michelle, I believe it was you that mentioned this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, part of how... They eventually, well, why they didn't worry too much about the Electoral College to begin with. Like, yeah, they they didn't know how to make it work. Uh, again, you pointed this out. How are they going to do national election? Heck, how are right. they going to do a local election? Because mm-hmm. uh, it, was, it was almost entirely up to the states who got to vote.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Hence why there's not much about voting in the Constitution right now other than you know, groups get to vote now, as opposed to, like, right. everyone has to vote, all that stuff. So it was, we'll we'll concede that, we'll let you vote, but I guess my larger point here is uh, they kind of knew who was going to be the guy, and why worry about it too much? It was going to be George Washington. Mm-hmm. So let's figure Absolutely. this out later.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, so doing some research for our podcast and obviously listening to some of the other sources that you've already mentioned, um, I kind of learned some new stuff too, you know, and I think part of what you're speaking to with how the Electoral College actually became part of our constitution was really the frustration of the representatives at the convention not knowing how to elect this new executive for the executive branch. And, you know, the the main thing that we learn is that the founding fathers wanted an electoral college to prevent, you know, what we would now call populism Mm -hmm. um, from electing a bad executive leader and reading some sources and actually looking at documents from the time that that's not really quite it. So there are some documents that do say there is a concern that people will, our ill-informed populace, will not be able to choose a good Mm -hmm. leader. But if you spread that out and look at it from a wider view, it wasn't necessarily that they just assumed that all Americans were stupid. It really wasn't quite that condescending. It was more like, we have a very large nation that we don't have a solid infrastructure for. How are people actually going to be truly informed about who the candidates are? It was... You know, it was a problem of the 18th century that information was difficult to spread. Uh, (laughs) The printing press was not, you know, even just 20 years after the convention, printing presses were vastly more available and the roads... um... And John
1: Adams hated that.
2: (laughs) He was a very angry little guy. He was (laughs) mad about everything. Um, But even just a couple, you know, a couple decades after the country was formed... Travel and communication was vastly improved, but at the time in 1787, it was really difficult to get things, like, actually spread across the nation. It was hard to get the delegates to actually, like, show up for their duties for the Article of Confederation. How could you possibly have all eligible white landowning men (laughs) well-informed on who is running for the executive office?
1: Is whiskey and cider provided? (laughs) Always.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Don't drink the water. (laughs)
1: Oh, yes.
2: But so there was a level of practicality that was a problem there for how do you how do you do a national election in 1787 when you have to send letters out like four months in advance to try to get the delegates to show up to the Constitutional Convention? Like there's a level of impracticality to it. But the other part is that when the convention came together, there were two main proposals. Um, One was called the Virginia Plan and the other was the New Jersey Plan. And both of these were looking at reshaping the articles of the confederation to look something more like the constitution we have now however both of these documents were proposing that congress select the executive yep. head so it wasn't necessarily that they were like oh somebody proposed a popular vote oh no 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 vote that down vote that down vote that down it was more like they never really considered that in the first place because how are you going to make that work Um, that was one of the, the, one of the big things. And there were some votes in the convention to make it a popular vote and it was passed several times. Like, you know, you can't just vote once and then write it in the constitution and that's it. A lot of the points in the constitution are voted on and reconsidered multiple times. But basically, the fact that they couldn't figure out, like, there weren't enough people truly happy enough with this, that that's why they kept saying, no, we got to figure out a different way. And, um, you know, the executive being beholden to Congress was not their greatest idea either, because the executive is supposed to be a check on the legislature. So Mm -hmm. how can the legislature be the one to pick the executive without there being some dirty deals going on? They couldn't come up with anything, so you're right, (laughs) Noel. They kicked the can over to what they called the Committee on Unfinished Parts, (laughs) which is just hilarious to me. They are literally like, ugh, what do we do? You guys, you five guys go in a room. You're the committee that has to figure out all the problems that we can't sort out. And so that's how the Electoral College came to be, was just like, well, we'll do this. This weird ass, like structure that kind of on paper seems to work it reflects the numbers of representatives in congress for the states like it kind of made sense in some ways so it wasn't like the worst idea in the world but it didn't pan out to really like (laughs) keep it didn't pan out because it, it well to say that i'm just saying that because i don't want the electoral college but um the electoral College true purpose was just, like, a way to get the Constitution signed. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, Yeah, there were a lot of, like, shitty things that came of the Electoral College, but they couldn't really predict that at the time. They were just trying to make something happen, and um, this is what they came up with. It was kind of like, eh, we don't know. Let's try this. And the biggest problem is that it it really hasn't been changed in the last 250 years.
1: No, and uh, also, there was actually... Michelle, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but part of, as it went to the Committee for Unfinished Projects, and, uh, you know, there's a fair amount of Virginians involved in this. Uh, as you said, Madison, who, who we previously discussed, was a very unhealthy-looking man for his entire adult life, seemingly.
2: But he was wicked smart. <laughs> yes. Uh,
1: but, you know, here's the problem. This does tend to favor states that have more people and smaller states especially uh, states in the south slave states like virginia went mm, i don't know about that and initially mm-hmm. the argument from what i understand was well part of how states in the north have more people is because they have factories so let us leverage to use a fun business term our assets here in the South and what we have are slaves and Mm -hmm. we have slavery. So Mm
0: -hmm.
1: while we're probably not going to let them vote, can we count them as three fifths of a person for the sake of electoral votes?
2: Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that was something I learned from the you're wrong about podcast in particular was that breaking down how the electoral votes pan out, it all starts with each state gets two senators, therefore each state gets at least two electoral college votes. There's that reflection that we're talking about.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: What that also means, though, is that if the House of Representatives is going to be, you know, different, it's going to be uh, considering more distinct information. If it's supposed to give smaller states a larger voice, the question then becomes, what is a small state?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's the question of population. So there's plenty of small states, geographic-wise, in the North, but they are very wealthy states. And their wealth is in the fact that they have a lot of manpower. They've got a lot of trade. Like you said, factories are going to start popping up soon. There's a lot of industry. And so for the Southern states, it's the same idea. Well, if the wealth in the North is from that, the wealth in the South is from our slaves. If the wealth in the North should count towards representation in the house of representatives so should our wealth and that's where the three-fifths compromise kind of comes in
1: and we have south carolina the leader in the slave trade who uh benefits for the most part well i say for the most part virginia obviously since we have three of the first four presidents are virginians and have an outsized influence
2: what is it like 10 of the first 12 are slave owners mm-hmm. something like which, that which
1: provides us an interesting segue into a point I have here, which is the first and really kind of last significant change to... Actually, it really is the last change to the Electoral College, <laughs> is in 1800, when really it's thought that Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr, who are kind of running on the same ticket for the Federalist Party, and uh, you know there's the thing where... In the initial constitution that was come about here kind of haphazardly, with the we'll put a pit in it later or for later and we'll talk about it because there's still some things that had yet to be resolved. You know, oddly enough, uh, the three fifths amendment doesn't get resolved, but, anyways, uh, sorry, three fifths compromise, excuse me. And even though, Michelle, I have somebody correct me if I'm wrong here, but even <laughs> though I believe Adams actually won the popular vote. He came in third in the electoral college, behind both Jefferson and Burr, and the Congress didn't really know what to do with that. Uh, mm-hmm. Alexander Hamilton ended up pass or basically throwing his weight behind sort of a compromise, if you will, uh, that allowed for Jefferson. To become president and Burr to become his vice president. Mm-hmm. And then we have the Twelfth Amendment. It kind of eliminates the the second person gets the person who comes in second if they're on the same ticket, you know, there there's a problem there. Uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: they, as I said, don't get rid of the three-fifths compromise. That remains in place, which was problematic, obviously, but you know, it's hard to get states to give back their rights when they have it's, well, it's really it's hard to get people to give back their power. And, uh, am I right about that, Michelle, that, uh, Adams actually won the popular vote or at least got more votes than Aaron Burr?
2: Um, I mean, honestly, that's not what I read. I read that Jefferson and Burr tied in the Electoral College. And that's where the confusion came from and they Mm -hmm. didn't know what to do with it. And so it was kicked over to the House of Representatives who ultimately picked Jefferson
1: We'll have to look that up, because that's the exact same thing I got. Yeah. Uh, And really, the only reason the Three-Fifths Compromise goes away, quote-unquote, if you will, is when the 13th Amendment is ratified, yeah, slavery is illegal, and in theory, freed slaves have the right to vote. Michelle, what happens during Reconstruction that... uh, Somehow the South, after losing, flexes their muscle that essentially, again, allows them to use their black population to gain representation, but, you know, uh, isn't necessarily living up to the creed that these people that are no longer enslaved get to vote.
2: Um, Are you referring to
1: 1876? I sure am.
2: (laughs) Yeah, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes against Tilden. And what did he do? (laughs) Well, (laughs) Tilden, it's such a hot mess. Um, You know, what's interesting about this is that uh, Tilden's the Democrat here. So in in the context of the 1800s, (laughs) in the 1870s more specifically, (laughs) the Democratic Party was still the party of the South. Republican Rutherford B. Hayes, the party of Lincoln, who has only been in the ground for 12 years at this point. Things are
1: happening fast.
2: Things are happening super fast. And it was a super tight race. Tilden won the popular vote by a tiny bit, but he was one electoral vote shy of the majority. And Hayes at the time claimed that he would have won the if it wasn't for the jim crow laws that prohibited african americans from voting for him in the south and it was such a close race and ended up going to the house and the weird thing is that it didn't it didn't go to the house it was like this this mix of people from the house and the supreme court and i don't i don't know i don't really understand the full details of it on that part but anyways again this is under like under the 12th amendment clause this this elite group of people are supposed to figure out well the the electoral race for president is too close we have to pick who the winner is we're
1: impartial because we're smart and men of stature we're
2: impartial because we're fancy and we're in government and therefore we are perfect but anyways um so this small group of people decided well let's go ahead and pick the republican you know who was saying that Voter suppression was happening against African-Americans. Let's go ahead and pick the Republican. But he has to agree to end Reconstruction and pull the Union Army out of the South, which is what Hayes did. So it was this this really gross—like, you think about it. It's a really gross compromise of principles. Yes. Like, he he gets Hayes gets to claim, well, voter suppression is happening because of Jim Crow in the South— And then, in order for him to actually win, based on this small committee of like twenty people or something—I don't know—it was a small group—they agree to give him the presidency if he ends Reconstruction and pulls out of the South, which then just perpetuates the thing that he's claiming is the reason why he didn't win the popular vote. You know, it's like it's very frustrating (laughs) to read about,
1: and even amongst that small group of enlightened parliamentarians or members of the judiciary, whatever you want to call it, we again have the problem that arises from not just liberal college but the whole founding where these small states, in particular, in this case, southern states, have a vastly disproportionate say in how the nation's business is done because, you know, they did not want to have less power to start with, and so you have a let's say good natured let's come back to it later compromise It mm-hmm. has a series of really disgusting compromises that follow, yeah because this power center issue is never really been resolved and
0: Mm-mm.
1: it 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 hasn't been resolved yet, and now it's viewed as a really it's a structural imperative, a system that's designed to be gained, if you think about it. Yeah. And this idea that who cares if you're not appealing to the vast majority of voters, even in your own state sometimes, or even if you're trying. This is the system as we have it. And if we want to keep it going, even though there's an awful history of white supremacy being the thing that sort of drives... Uh, mm illiberalism and undemocratic rule that's fine so from there michelle unless you have something else i don't really have a situation where the electoral college is thoroughly discussed on a national level until the mid late uh 20th century is there something you'd like to add until we get there
2: I do. Um, so the specific examples, at, you know, especially within the last several decades, those are those are easier to kind of understand in some ways. And, you know, obviously, as we've lived through some of them, um, it makes sense that we would be uh, very frustrated by the Electoral College. But I do want to say that historically we are not alone in this um, because, as you said, the Electoral College was kind of like We'll put a pin in it, and we'll figure it out later. We'll adjust it. It was adjusted a couple of times, but not in any significant way. But in the last 200, almost 50 years since its inception in Congress, there have been, according to the National Archives, over 700 proposals <laughs> to adjust or eliminate the Electoral College.
1: This isn't working. Shut up.
2: 700 times of that. This is obviously a system that it was deeply questioned from its inception.
1: Rightly so. As we said to start with, the whole, like, well, why is this here? Well, let me give you a bunch of reasons that aren't really borne out by the actual historical evidence, but why we want to think it was this way. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was designed to stop Donald Trump. What? That, okay, I don't believe that. Uh, um... Yeah, and that also kind of fails to mention the – Michelle, as you said earlier, if Congress was supposed to decide, which even that, there's kind of been some spin in the other direction where no, 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 the electors who, again, that's very vague, who are selected by the state's legislatures will be people that will be smart – in this case, men of great integrity that will go, hmm, no, I can't mm-hmm. in good conscience vote for Lyndon Baines Johnson as a random example. Uh,
2: <laughs> it, uh, so, it, I mean, I guess like, to be really broad about it, uh, the Electoral College is very much mythologized. Huh,
1: that sounds familiar.
2: <laughs> I know, in the same way. As our theme of season three of the Strange Tonic podcast are uh, political heroes and political saviors. The myth is what matters, but the myth is often just a very, very sheer veil over protecting the status quo and maintaining a specific power structure that prevents everybody from participating fully and prevents marginalized groups from actually having
1: a voice. That <laughs> inadvertently is a quite good segue to what we run into in 1968,
2: where... Uh, Ooh, 1968.
1: Yep. Our good <laughs> friend from a previous pod, George Wallace, is a driver of a almost nearly successful attempt to overhaul, actually, basically get rid of the Electoral College, wherein... Mm. Governor George Wallace, and uh, if you remember Michelle, his wife is still alive at this point, even though he later would refuse to let the doctors know she had cancer, uh,
2: Yes. <laughs> won
1: 46 electoral votes. And he basically swept the South, and even before that, though, there was a lot of worries within both parties that he'd win more. And somehow Mm. the legitimacy of the election would be called into account, or into question, I should say. Because, uh, you know, how can someone win the presidency with a plurality of votes, Michelle? Hmm. Uh, And I also made a note here that, uh, you know, while Nixon, our good friend Nixon, won 300 electoral votes. And Humphrey won like one hundred and ninety one. The separation in the popular vote at the time was five hundred and ten thousand.
2: Oh wow! And
1: Biden has surpassed a seven million differential <laughs> ahead of Trump in this election. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> Hillary Clinton only won by what three or four million? Yeah, yeah. seven million. Like that. That. That's like we're just we're forgetting about that. Like it's nothing. Uh, right. Also, it should be noted that, yes, this did worry both Democrats and Republicans, but there were still conservative Democrats. You know the whole problem where, in 1976, Jimmy Carter actually courted and really needed George Wallace's endorsement. (sighs) And this was also kind of the end of the liberal Republicans' He'd been falling out of favor for a while, but uh, Nelson Rockefeller was still a force within the party. This led to House Joint Resolution 681, where, and this, I don't think this is a bad idea, we'll get into more of this in a second. The president, presidential ticket had to receive 40% or more of the popular vote, or it would go to a runoff between the top two tickets.
2: That doesn't sound too bad, actually.
1: Nixon liked it.
2: That's actually how a lot of countries run their their presidential elections.
1: It it is. It's, well, I guess one major selling point for those people out there that are going the two party system is a problem, this actually addressed that, where it really would allow for third party candidates to be a part of the conversation mm-hmm. because say no one gets forty percent, they can really make their case and it can
0: mm-hmm.
1: it could be chaotic, which if you if your point is to Make it so it's not so entrenched with with one party or another. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing to do, as I just said too. Nixon was down with it. Richard Milhouse Nixon was down with something that was not super illiberal. Then again, he was initially down with the whole uh, equal rights amendment, but we'll talk about that later, Michelle, on a different podcast.
2: Well, you know, honestly, <laughs> like it, you know, Nixon had won several elections but he would also lost several so that smaller margin actually would have been beneficial to him in a few of his races that's really interesting though that you brought up the two-party system the i'm trying to i'm trying to formulate my question into words like it's in my brain but i don't have (laughs) words for it yet (laughs) i mean i i'd never thought of it this way but is the electoral college also is it part of why we still have this two-party system bullshit
1: I definitely believe so, uh, because, again, this whole minority rule thing. Think about places like Wyoming. Mm -hmm. Thoroughly red, has been really forever. I can't think Mm -hmm. of a time Wyoming was not red. And while they have two Senate seats, they only have one at large House Mm -hmm. representative, currently uh, Liz Cheney. When you have that, how, like, how do you get away from two-party system with, hmm. with that? Where if you have one party that can control the small states in particular, they can do whatever they want.
0: Hmm.
1: I, I think that's a good point. And from here, what other random, not well fleshed out bit from the Constitution that you bo- you and I both dislike that is both liberal and undemocratic? undemocratic and lends itself well to minority rule do you think was used to shut down this amendment that would have actually done we talked about you know the whole like gotten rid of the electoral college and had a 40 percent rule in place
2: oh um like the electors
1: something like that but think of the senate it passed the house but it got hung up in the senate for some reason a different F-word than what we have titled this, uh, <laughs> this moving forward in the Senate with the filibuster.
2: Oh, shit. The filibuster. Yes. Damn it.
1: One of which was none other than, again, South Carolina makes its case here, Senator Strom Thurmond. Uh,
2: the ghost of Thurmond haunts us still.
1: Can you guess what they argued would be problematic from this amendment. For them. Or for the nation for that matter.
2: Um, I'm not sure.
1: National voter fraud. See nationalized elections oh my gosh. States rights. And the weakened power of the small states.
2: You're you're laying this out like Hansel and Gretel, and I keep veering off into the weeds <laughs> and not picking up what you're putting down. Absolutely. The filibuster and small states. Dude.
1: We're back. <laughs> we can't get away from it. <laughs> and I'm through my history spiel at this mm. point. So unless you'd like to continue on that, I kind of move on to your question from a bit ago about why kind of we can't get away from this minority rule how the electoral college just keeps making this kind of keep happen happening, excuse me.
2: You know, it was interesting Reading some studies about, you know, thinking thinking about what I just said, like historically there's been so many proposals to try to adjust or get rid of the Electoral College. And, uh, you know, some of our research did provide us with information about just, you know, basic, basic polls. And
0: mm-hmm.
2: in like the 60s, 70s, and 80s, so the, I mean like overwhelming majority of polls like I think in the 80s it was up to like 70, 70% or something of Americans polled said that yeah we should get rid of the electoral college like this is, mm-hmm. this is archaic it's nonsense we don't need this anymore and now to see how it's like retracted back <laughs> to only 50% think that we should get rid of the electoral college and 35% want to keep it And I think I wrote in my notes tonight, like, oh, 35%. That's very similar to Trump's approval ratings right now, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Like, those numbers look familiar. How about that? And, uh, like, why can't we get away from it? It's just because there's just that tiny sliver, that, that little extra bit that either just believes so mightily in the myth of American history that the Electoral College is this grand thought through um a perfect device to help keep government checks and balances in place
1: they all had it figured out right
2: exactly like this this um hero worship of our founding fathers and you know the the founding fathers had some really good ideas but these were also like guys in their 20s who were worried about money and were worried about keeping their slaves I mean these are not these are not perfectly enlightened individuals
1: and they didn't have a thought process on how to actually get to where they wanted to go no. it was let's find a like with so many things like compromise and agreement and negotiations it's let's find one spot where we can agree mm-hmm. and then we'll move on from there but it never came back
2: right and i, I think it's it's so interesting like hearing hearing arguments about you know, like, originalist interpretations of the Constitution, or, <laughs>
1: or
2: I think even... You know how much I love that. <laughs> right? Originalism. Um uh, But even some of the critical interpretations were like, oh, this, this wonderful uh, government document that was created, it was meant to be amended. They meant for it to be changed. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's also, like... Lionizing this, <laughs> this concept when in reality, it's a living
1: document, <laughs> Michelle. The,
2: yeah, it's like this was not a. It, they, they, they threw some of the shit over to a subcommittee called the Unfinished Parts Committee. Like, come on, these guys were just trying to get some shit together. Like, let's be realistic. It, they were far from home, half drunk most of the time, away from their wives, <laughs> away from their businesses, away from their plantations. They had a lot of things on their mind and they were just trying to come up it's it's like any office meeting like oh god here we are again what are we doing exactly. <laughs> it's like a it's a 5 month long office meeting with no air conditioning Let's get out of here. yeah no air conditioning and uh you know undri- undrinkable water <laughs> and no coffee
0: <laughs>
2: you know it, it, our, our country was really formed on a women of prayer. And the fact that we've done this well so far is, you know, pretty cool and all. But we need to be okay with questioning these original documents and thinking about how can we make this better? How can we actually live up to our proposed ideas of all men are created equal, you know? And (laughs) Mm -hmm. and there's so much lionizing around these documents. That we end up keeping a stupid fucking system like the Electoral College for 250 years, (laughs) for no reason other than the fact that the founding fathers put it together.
1: Well, they knew what they were doing in trying to kind of make things work initially, because some stuff was not working, and then come back to it later. Oh, wait, sorry, we'd not come back to it later. It was perfect from the beginning. Excuse me.
2: Right? Like, I mean, they like, there's. We talked about this so many times, like especially slavery, that was one of the biggest things. They didn't know how to keep everybody in the room and come up with a plan. They just said, well, we'll kick this down the road. We're going to kick this can down the road because we can't come up with a good idea right now. And what that turned into was two centuries of, of uh, you know, of people assuming that, oh, well, they were, they had, they had a, a long-term vision. No, they were just trying to get the fuck out of there, like, <laughs> you
1: know, and yep. be able
2: to collect taxes afterwards. Like, that's really what they wanted was be able to have a functioning government. This is not a perfect system. And it was so flawed that people have been questioning and questioning it since day one. We should be questioning these things. And with that, I mean, two and a half centuries of questioning, shouldn't we change it?
1: But now it's so baked in um, that how do we change... I I have no answer to that myself, because I think we actually have to get people to go, hey, no, uh, this will actually help you. Uh, In 1969, one of the senators that did the whole filibuster thing was Carl Curtis of Nebraska. And this is verbatim from the Mental Floss link explained his state had 92 one hundredths of one of the electoral of one uh, of the electoral vote but 1968 would have only had 73 one hundredths of one percent and just this I- I'm not authorized to reduce the voting power of my state by 20% percent
0: hmm
1: how do you come back from that it, it, I mean that's that's obvious. Like that's at least the people that voted for Trump are going. Well, he cut my taxes,
2: hmm.
1: as opposed to like, yeah, he's great. Like, yeah, he's awful, but he cut my taxes. Like, at least that's honest. Yeah. And I don't know how you return from that. And I'm with you, Michelle, 100%. Where this, it was always meant to be just a <laughs> a workaround. And this is how government works. This is how negotiation works. We are going to find something that will work for now. And Let's come back later and fig- well, and Not figure it out. Figuring it out is never going to happen. Let's come back later and at least mm-hmm. try and make it better. Try and make it not so crappy. Mm-hmm. But because even as great as we all want our hero Thomas Jefferson to be, he understood that this compromise benefited him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Madison understood it benefited him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: As you said, the early presidents, a lot of whom were Southerners, understood... This benefited them politically, it benefited them economically, Mm -hmm. and this is where I get into why I really have a problem with it, and it's not because, yes, uh, dear listener, I have voted for a Democrat for president since I could vote, and I doubt that will change. I have voted for some Republicans down ballot here or there, but is this really helping you? Uh, To backtrack a second here, Michelle, to go back to our uh, how small states also have always had the power, I I don't know if I'm just helping my own head about this, but so the Senate, as we discussed before, already affords a disproportionate power to small states. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Wyoming has three electoral votes Mm -hmm. because they have two senators, yet only have one House seat. Mm Mm-hmm. This is the case with a lot of small states across, the, especially the Midwest, uh, in Kansas, Nebraska, places like that, and in the South. So there you go. There's your check. There's your check on the executive. The Senate also confirms Supreme Court nominees. Another check. So you have, in theory, a Supreme Court which, through the nomination process and the confirmation process, is also a check On majority rule. And because of the electoral College, you have another check on majority rule Mm -hmm. because they have to get that. So, in the three branches of government, you have one half of one branch that is actually majority rule.
2: Mm.
1: That seems beyond crazy to me. Mm. Yeah. And... This is where I get into, like, how does this actually help you? If you want a third party, as we said before, Michelle, Mm -hmm. the Electoral College isn't there for you. No. It's going to keep the two-party system going. Mm -hmm. I believe this is from a book by, again, show notes, post, post, we'll fix this this up, by E.J. Dion, Thomas Mann, and somebody else, where there are studies that show competitive races... In whether it's gerrymandered house districts or sorry, not gerrymandered, excuse me, competitive races in house races, local elections, wherever, produce a less partisan outcome. You also get better candidates. And as they mention on the You're Wrong About podcast, yes, a popular vote would lend itself more towards a more city centric. Populism based kind of campaign, but more people in LA County, or more Republicans, I should say, in LA County voted for Donald Trump than did in West Virginia. You would have people, Republicans, going into urban areas, ex urban areas, suburban areas, with ideas that would speak to these people because, you know, they have to.
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And Michelle, I know that so when I initially, when you and I first met, I said I was a centrist, in which I <laughs> have since agreed with you that it was a silly thing to say, and also like <laughs> I don't know what centrism is, yeah. what moderation is, <laughs> but I do like this idea that competition, when it's in good faith, produces better ideas, mm. can produce better policy, and we're not seeing that. We're seeing things that. You know, people maybe in LA County conservatives think will appeal to people in again Wyoming, but no money is being spent in Wyoming. Right. People don't care about what's happening, in, or probably don't care happening in Kansas. Democrats don't care.
0: Mm-mm.
1: Why is this coming down to, as they said on that podcast, swing states? Mm-hmm. And really, the only kind of relevant state as far as a swing state it might be. Right now, kind of the outlier is Texas, where Texas is moving more and more purple right. as their population gets more and more diverse.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But they were an example of where you didn't spend money in the past because it was a you know it was a lost cause for liberals and it was conservative bastion. Like there has to be <laughs> this ah. Sorry, I, now I'm angry. <laughs> yeah,
2: no, I mean, but, but I mean, with all the money that goes into these elections every year—not even just the presidential election, but every year, um, even on the non-national ballot years—but the vast majority of this crazy amount of money that goes into elections, it's only spent in a handful of states, and again, it's mm-hmm. in, in just the swing states, the small states. Like Wyoming are not swing states. No one gives a shit about those states so the whole the whole idea that the electoral college is supposed to balance things out and give small states a vote or a voice it doesn't. That's a complete fallacy on on paper. It looks real nice like that, right? Like oh yeah, mm-hmm. okay, We'll give them this many votes and here's here's how it's all gonna work, kind of like the representative government in the legislature, but When it comes down to it, that's not at all what happens.
1: No, and it's as I said before. Like the small states are already represented a lot. Like if you're looking to have a check against executive, there's the Senate. The Senate is by far and away. If you look at numbers where, as far as how much benefit per GDP that. California gets, as far as tax dollars goes, it is ridiculously less and insanely disproportionate to places like Alabama. It's it's not that small states are not having enough power, having they so say they have insanely too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and <clears throat> another thing from my notes here is, yes, a national popular vote would obviously on. The, the face of things benefit Democrats because you know California, New York, where I live uh, increasingly Colorado, but if you forced Republicans to have to go into California, New York, Washington place in you know the Chicago area and say, no, this is how our policies will help hmm. How does that not benefit our policy nationwide? To me, this just kind of seems like we're lazy. Uh, Michelle, you talked about before the whole like lionizing of electoral college and how it's mysterious and yet, you know, they meant to do this. Yet they meant to do this thing they didn't even know they meant to do. One of the podcasts I listened to was a CNN podcast on electoral college and. <laughs> Which makes me think of a different one I listened to, which is from a, again, post, uh, kind of more of an academic podcast where a political science professor is talking with a librarian. And the librarian says, Oh, it was Steve King from CNN. And he's like, I believe it's John King. And this <laughs> is John King on this CNN podcast saying, Well, yeah, but it's, it's really cool because, you know, for those of us that are in the know, it lets us kind of figure it out, you know. Take a look at different data. Fun. Um, mm-hmm. I'm glad you have fun with that, but no, there's got to be better ways to read the data than, you know, how is this playing out in these random swing states where... <clears throat> and I was about to go on a uh, how the Senate fucks things up rant. Let's avoid that one. Okay. Um, and, okay, but believe it or not, Michelle, again, back to the whole uh, centrism, moderates, all that stuff, but... Of all people, I listened to a podcast that featured National Review writer Kevin D. Williamson Mm. talking about a hypothetical tech worker in Austin, Texas, who may have been a staunch conservative growing up, but took this good job in Austin, making money, and sees, hey, this isn't bad. Like, the city's fairly well run, Mm -hmm. the streets are clean, Uh, people are getting things that they need. I don't mind paying a little more in taxes. And to that he goes, to Williamson's point, we're losing the battle. And I think that is where, I guess, the Electoral College drives me nuts, is we're not talking ideas anymore in actual policy We're talking this weird abstract institution that exists to do random things depending on who you talk to, which has not accomplished at least one of them that we mentioned earlier, that it would keep us from electing, or the people, electing a dingbat president who has no cares about anything but himself. And that's, in a nutshell, that's where I'm at with Latour College is... I don't know how to fix it. I just know that it's not a good institution. I don't really think it has ever been. And when the bargains from the beginning were either kind of incompetent or, you know, not well thought out and have yielded even worse outcomes, Mm -hmm. there's got to be something better.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, the Electoral College, it, it can go either way. Um, it's, it's a system that can, who, <laughs> I don't know if we've seen it yet, but, you know, any, any particular voting block of this country who wins the popular vote, yet the opposing candidate wins the election, that can apply to either side, honestly. Mm-hmm. It, can, it can go either way. Um, but the way it's been used and manipulated, it, it only encourages, you know, minority rule. And so, you know, how do we, how do we prevent minority rule? You get rid of
1: it. Yep. For as much, uh, those of you that watch the presidential debates or, uh, Michelle, I must admit, I've been far, not must admit, I'm actually... glad about this. I've been not on Twitter and even when I scroll through, I have Google News open on my desktop throughout the day. I don't click on stories that I know are designed to either upset me or upset me, well, make me upset with the actual source Mm. or upset with the people that they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Nah, I'm not doing that. Uh, This isn't helping. But we're still on this whole thing of do the Democrats want to expand and, you know, basically uh, <laughs> through legislative action, expand the Supreme Court so that they can push through their own agenda? Hmm. You know, that really wouldn't be a problem if we did away with things like Electoral College and kind of lean back the Senate. But, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> let's, the minority rule, it, it isn't helping us, I should, I should say.
2: No, no. And, I mean, <laughs> minority rule is how you get Trump. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. l- that's literally what happened.
1: It's how you get Mitch McConnell.
2: Yep. And that's how you end up with worse things, too. <laughs> much worse things. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, so much of our history really has been minority rule. And at least as a historian, that's where we get these bifurcated narratives where questioning our history is un-American. And if you, you know, if you don't question our history, like, what are you doing? You must be racist. You must be stupid. You know, it, it it's, that type of conversation doesn't really help anything.
1: Very true. <laughs> I, th-
2: I think the Electoral College really, really just enhances and illuminates that separation and in, in thinking and discussion and i don't know it's it, generally people are kind generally i think people are good so why wouldn't you want the popular vote with that there's plenty of people i know that are liberal to the point of communism and there are plenty of people i know that are <laughs> centrist conservative to the point of well, not fascism, obviously, but, you know,
0: <laughs> really,
2: pers- really pushing that status quo. And it's like, y'all are nice people. Why you got to hate on each other? These faceless, you know, voting blocks that you don't even know. Like, come on. We're all just people. And, you know, it can be a lot better for everybody if we just um let let it happen the way I think it should happen, which is, you mm-hmm. know. Democratic rule. And that's not what we have in a lot of ways.
1: I'm going to use your point as a segue here, Michelle. Oh. To both... Uh, it's it's to my good thing of the week. Excellent. So, I don't think I'm going to finish, at least as it's in its draft form right now, that long-form reacts piece that I had about kind of being mad at Trump voters.
2: Yeah. Okay. Because...
1: My good thing of the week is, I mean, finish my point, no, not finish my point, but add on before I move on, where I mentioned that Andrew Sullivan, conservative, polemic, legit academic, like, and great writer, as I said before, he's much smarter than I am, mm-hmm. and just reading it, it's like, okay, dude, let's keep the words down, and, you know, for me, that's a, hey, dude, I'm a wordy mother effer. Excuse me. Uh, (laughs) But this is too much even for me.
2: Yeah.
1: He discusses that, or mentions that people like Trump and dictators and authoritarians are somehow the byproduct of too much democracy. Which, again, how can you make that argument when? He did not win the majority of the votes in his own primary.
2: Right, yeah.
1: He did not win the majority of the votes in the general election either time. That's not the product of too much democracy. That's the product of, I don't want to use what people have said before, a failed democracy. Or even (laughs) what uh, Sullivan said himself, which is late-stage democracy. I don't think that's true either. It's a product of a gamed system where even, I don't think, Republican politicians necessarily care, respect, or, well, I don't think they respect their own voters or view them as necessarily human. They're people that pull the levers. Uh, Michelle, as you saw on that piece I posted, or posted, I linked to on the show notes from the Bulwark where a former Bush supporter and local Republican chair in Wisconsin called up Senator Ron Johnson and he keeps talking about, oh, yeah, well, Republican voters love Trump. You should see his rallies. They love America. It's like, well, everyone loves America. Plus, he's n- he's not and you're not just in charge of Republican voters. Like There are more people than that. But, yeah, just this idea that no, like, we're not just one... Well, voters should be respected. And this is, I guess, where I get to my good thing of the week, is I finished up late last week the book Love Thy Neighbor by Arthur C. Brooks, hmm. who is the outgoing president of the American Enterprise Institute. And uh, for those of you that aren't kind of politicy people, as maybe Michelle and I are... That's not a liberal think tank. That is known as a well, Michelle, you like this, center right think tank. Boom, boom, boom. It is
0: boom.
1: a <laughs> at least economically, which I, I don't like that term either, yeah. uh conservative think tank.
2: Sure.
1: But one of the things he talks about is you just alluded to Michelle, is people aren't stupid. They're not bad. Hmm. It's everyone they're trying to get through it all but they're they're being fat or fad, fed <laughs> bad information
2: right yeah
1: or they're just too human to the point where there's so much information out there that they're trying to find ways that the world makes sense to them mm-hmm. and when you have a party that is not interested well i wouldn't say one party. Both parties have some problems. Both sides, Michelle. But when you have one party in particular <laughs> yeah. that is really interested in finding the both easiest and most oddly complicated ways to maintain power, mm. they don't care whether or not their voters are well-informed, whether or not they're winning on a basis of ideas. And the conclusion, really, of Brooks's book is that when you shut all these things down, when it's contempt when it's anger, when it's resentment, and not just kind of addressing the humanity of people, you don't get good ideas. You get vitriol. You get contempt. Mm-hmm. So my good thing of the week was is I'm glad I read that book, and whether or not you want to read it or not, Love Thy Neighbor by Arthur C. Brooks was something that's I really, really enjoyed, and I think, uh, Michelle, <laughs> unintentionally, I believe you also... Seemed like you would like that book as well.
2: I probably would. Yeah.
1: <laughs> What's your good thing of the week, Michelle?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, <laughs> this may sound weird, but I think my good thing of the week is actually doing research on this topic. I Excellent. really enjoyed it. And it made me think about some new things, and I learned some new historical information. And I just really got a kick out of it because it feels it feels so relevant. It feels so, I don't know, exciting for the future because I think a lot of people are on, on the same page that we are <laughs> uh, being fed up with the status quo. And for the first time for a lot of people probably in four years, we feel a little more positive about changes to come. So... I'm. I'm gonna say that's my good thing of the week.
1: Very good. I. Uh, I also enjoyed, although I didn't do as much research as you did. I also enjoyed uh, <laughs> researching this podcast, and um, even though we didn't get to the whole, how does the English parl or the British parliamentary system work? Oh
2: my god! Could you imagine if we were trying to like suss <laughs> out the British parliamentary system in this same episode? It'd be like nine and a half hours, honestly. I
1: tried finding podcasts for that. It was like, okay, I'm done. I- <laughs> Like they seem to know and just like move on from there. Like I don't know it. I don't know where we're going from here.
2: Are we both just influenced by watching The Crown a lot lately? Like that's right. (laughs) What's the British government like? Let's find out.
1: (laughs) How does this work? You don't need to know. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Okay. I'll go back to watching The Crown then. It's
2: fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Michelle. Thanks.